You're listening to a Wheeler Centre podcast. It was important to me to try and use the book to explore this shift and this gap between what I see in the media, what I see in fiction and on television and what I'd observed in life. This event was presented as part of the Wheeler Centre's Spring Fling, a short series of Big Ideas programme. I want to begin by acknowledging that we are gathered here on land that was never ceded and to pay my respects to the people of the Boyurong and Wurong language groups of the Eastern Kulin Nations. Acknowledging also elders, past, present and emerging. RMIT Culture is thrilled to partner with the Wheeler Centre as part of Spring Fling to present tonight's conversation with debut literary star Natasha Brown and writer and journalist Jamila Ridsvi about Natasha's highly acclaimed novel, Assembly. And to introduce our two guests, Natasha Brown is a British novelist. She was a 2019 London Writers' Award recipient, a 2022 Burgess Fellow at the University of Manchester's Centre for New Writing, and a Women's Prize and Good Housekeeping Futures Award finalist. Her debut novel, Assembly, was shortlisted for the Folio Prize, the Goldsmiths Prize, and the Orwell Prize for Fiction. Please welcome Natasha. <laughs> Natasha speaking this evening with Jamila Ridsvi. Jamila is the Deputy Managing Director at Nine's Future Women. She's a best-selling author for adults and children and an opinion columnist for The Age and Sydney Morning Herald. Jamila hosts a number of podcasts, including The Weekend Briefing, Anonymous Was a Woman, and The Secret Life of Carers. She previously advised the Australian Government on gender equality, childcare, media and employment, and is an ambassador for Plan International and the Royal Melbourne Hospital Neuroscience Foundation. Welcome, Jamila. Thank you so much for that very warm welcome and welcome to Natasha. It's lovely to have you here. Oh, I'm so excited to be here. My first time in Australia, so thank you for having me. (laughs) Everyone's impressed so far already and it means that uh, uh, you're going to get a lot of requests and suggestions, firm (laughs) suggestions for what you should and shouldn't uh, visit. Um, I'd like to add my acknowledgement of the country on which we're gathered tonight. I'd like to pay my respects to the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation, uh, elders past and present, and extend an extra special welcome to any First Nations people who are joining us this evening. It is such a pleasure to be in a room full of readers, a room full of people who I know that this very particular experience of coming across a short novel that is so elegant and powerful and impactful that you start to wonder why you ever read the 500-page books and whether they've just been wasting their words. Uh, Assembly is, of course, one such short novel. And Natasha, it's been a pleasure to be with you already this evening to have a bit of a chat, but we've saved the most important parts for here on stage. Friends, I do want to say, and hopefully this won't come as a shock to anyone, uh, there will be so many spoilers, <laughs> like not just a couple of them, but all of the spoilers. Uh, so do not be mad at me. You know what you signed up for. Um, we are going to dive into the many and varied questions that Assembly raises. So let's do that. Natasha, this is the first book you've ever written and published, which to me is both outrageous and quite rude that it's that good. <laughs> Uh, previously you've worked in finance and like our, prota- our protagonist, is working in finance as entirely awful as it sounds? <laughs> you know, I think the work environment in the book, we don't see a whole heap of it. No. Um, and I wanted to be light with that because I wanted it to be something that was familiar to anyone who's perhaps in sort of been in an office environment, been in that sort of post-2008 work, working culture. I think for me personally, I'm glad I've had the experience I've had with my previous career and I expect I'll go back to it. I think it's sort of given me um, a different route into books and a a different appreciation for writing. Early in assembly, our unnamed narrator uh, gives a speech to an assembly of young women and in it she says, I'm going to quote you to you, how weird. Anyway, (laughs) in it she says... I do these talks, schools and universities, women's panels, recruiting fairs, every few weeks. It's an expectation of the job. The diversity must be seen. And after giving the speech, she asks herself, how many women and girls have I lied to? I wanted to ask if you personally have been asked in your life to perform your own diversity. And if so, did you go along with the lie? (laughs) 
<laughs> well, I'm glad you raised that scene because for me that was really a central scene in the book, which is why it ties in so strongly to the title. When we see the narrator addressing these schoolchildren, we're skeptical of her. We don't believe what she's saying. We feel she's speaking on behalf of the organisation she's representing. And I really wanted to invite readers to apply that scepticism to the book as a whole. Because sometimes we look at a book like this and think, oh yes, this is this particular woman's real lived experience. That's what I'm consuming right now. But I really wanted to try and highlight that it's too, it's a product. Um, you know, it's published by my publishers because they think it will make a profit. And they're not going to publish anything that they don't think is going to help towards that aim. Which isn't to say that there's nothing real or meaningful in the book, but I did want to invite the same scepticism because in terms of the performance how do you publicize a book you go out and perform it um, and I feel there's a real duality between that scene and publishing as a whole. That is so beautifully put and I think speaks to the impact of your previous career and future career again uh, on you and your writing. Um, performative diversity is a is a phrase that I'm going to now incorporate into my everyday vernacular from now on. I think it's something I previously would have uh, labelled as sort of like a one-off act of assimilation or being a model minority perhaps. Uh, what is your observation in terms of the personal cost of assimilation for women of colour, women like your protagonist, in spaces where they remain unusual. And as you say, it doesn't have to be banking. There's a whole lot of different corporate spaces where I think women of colour still feel like they don't belong. Yeah, I think that's a great question. And I thought a lot about it when we see a protagonist like the narrator in this book, um, you know, who's classified as a black woman, typically they're economically insecure. Um, they're not in a relationship or they're in a very unstable relationship. And even if they're sort of a later millennial, they tend to be quite underdeveloped in maturity. And to me, that didn't really seem realistic in terms of the women that I know, uh, my friends, my acquaintances, the lifestyles I'm used to. I felt there was really a gap between uh, reality and sort of how this demographic is presented in novels. And I think it is that gap that leads to um, this sort of extrapolation from an individual to sort of be perhaps a token or a performative um, symbol. And I wanted to explore that. Um, yeah, so in terms of the assimilation question, I kind of feel that our cultural expectations are a little bit behind what's actually going on um, in banking, in tech, in a lot of these sort of newer industries or the more sort of technological side of these industries. There's actually huge diversity um, precisely because these aren't client facing roles. These aren't customer facing roles. Businesses care about making a profit. They will hire the person who can do the work effectively for the lowest price. And the strange consequence of that is there is diversity there. Um, and these organizations want to publicize that and encourage more workers. Now, is their approach clumsy? I, I think so. But um, I, it was important to me to try and use the book to explore this shift and this gap between what I see in the media, what I see in fiction and on television and what I'd observed in life. Yeah, I find that interesting when you say that um, this is a, it's almost a genre and a, the young black woman is almost a character that we're seeing published a whole lot all of a sudden. There's been such a, a dearth of black women's stories over time and then there's almost a sense of, almost I want to use this word, but there's almost a sense of, sense of trendiness right now, but we're publishing to type. And I, I remember the first time I read the novel, which uh, I've just listened to the audiobook, but the first time I read the novel was when it first came out and in the a, in the early lines when I suddenly realised the protagonist had money, I almost took a backward step like that. Hold on, that wasn't that wasn't the narrative I was expecting. <laughs> so, yeah, yeah, yeah. And, you know, I really was thinking a lot about this when I approached the book. On the book, it says the narrator of Assembly is a black British woman. And I think that's a really interesting sentence. If we go to the bookshop, if we go to the library, most books don't have a sentence like that. Um, the reason publishers put it there is because it functions like a genre. It sets up narrative expectations, thematic expectations. We as book buyers, as readers, understand what sort of a story we're going to get. But I was really interested in what happens when an identity gets conflated with a particular story in that way. And so for the book, I wanted to be very conscious of the effective genre it would sit within just because of who I am and try and 
I wouldn't exactly describe it as satire, but borrow from the techniques of satire. So a real awareness of what the conventions were, which ones I'd embrace, which ones I'd avoid altogether, and which ones, like the sort of um, her, her income, her career, I wanted to try and subvert. There's another passage, Natasha, and I promise I'm not going to spend the whole night <laughs> quoting you to you. That would be very awkward. But in another passage, you speak uh, to the contrast between the expectation that I think some model minorities feel to work harder and work smarter than everyone else. But at the same time, you're not supposed to make yourself seen to be doing that. You are supposed to be uh, invisible in order to avoid making everyone else uncomfortable. This is a very personal question, but you have been awarded and acclaimed for this work already. Uh, you're travelling from here back home and then on to Switzerland, uh, which means you have already refused to meet those expectations of invisibility. How's that made you feel? Well, I'm really interested in kind of binary opposition. Um, and so this kind of idea that there's an expectation of invisibility and sort of perfect assimilation but also on the other side of that, paradoxically, there's an expectation of hypervisibility, um, sort of criticism, attention, um, commentary around people who sit within this uh, identity or any kind of identity that differs from what we consider the norm. Uh, and I'm really interested in that because they seem like they conflict one another. But actually, I think the instances of hypervisibility when we zoom in on an individual serve to underscore the instances of invisibility. And I think it's a really interesting duality. And from a fiction perspective, it's fun to explore and dive into. Uh, my reading was that you've essentially posed a bit of a question of uh, whether exiting the performance of model minority entirely is an option and that the other option is going along with it. And to me, they're two very dire options. Do you feel there's other choices in between? I was really interested. I think that's such a key question in what is choice? Um, you know, sometimes the narrator is described as complicit within capitalism or within structures that exist, but it's very different, difficult, I think, as an individual to step outside of what is the dominant social system. I don't think there's um, really a practical way that one individual could do that. And also, looking at sort of the context of the narrator, she's in her 30s, when she would have been growing up and in school, it was the sort of neoliberal era. So Clinton in the States, um, Tony Blair in the UK, and this idea of pulling yourself up by your bootstraps and making something of yourself. And if you diverge from that, it wasn't that you were opting out or doing something different. It's that you were a drain on government resources. This would have been the narrative from when she was growing up. The thing is, it's obviously not supposed to be possible to pull yourself up by your bootstraps what happened is the economy changed and these jobs the sector the narrator works in evolved out of nowhere suddenly it was possible to do this but I think for me the question is what then is it something that lets her suddenly be free of criticism like she was promised she would be as a child no not really um, she just gets criticized in a different way um, which can sound quite hopeless but for me as a writer I wanted to kind of sit within the uncertainty of this question and try and really tease out what it means when we say someone uh, is being complicit or we demand that a person disenfranchises themselves. What do we actually mean? What could she actually do that would seem okay? Mm. It, there's so many points in my reading where I felt like you almost defied genre and defied form because you kept moving in and out of different approaches. And at one point in, uh, in the novel, you appear to almost have a wink and a nod to the reader through the protagonist writing, again, I promise I'm not going to quote too much, uh, sugarcoat the rhetoric, embed the politics within a story, make it relatable, personable, shape my truth into a narrative arc. Do you write that as deliberately as this <laughs> suggests? So uh, to me that is almost you telling us how you're writing this book <laughs> and your approach. Um, tell me about how you put a book together. Are you some? It seems from talking to you you have a level of deliberateness deliberateness almost like you're moving pieces around on the chessboard <laughs> oh thank you I think 
you know, for me, the narrator, she doesn't have a typical narrative arc or character arc. She doesn't change. She doesn't grow. She doesn't do very much. It's not even clear that she speaks. For me, I see her arc as being one of shifting from an object, something that the story happens to, who we literally see objectified in the third person at the beginning, to an active narrator and storyteller, someone who directs our gaze, determines the pace of the narrative, shows us what we should pay attention to. For me, that's really her arc. And so these metafictional moments, these bit where she nods and winks towards um, the reader, uh, were absolutely supposed to be deliberate and a part of that growth. And I think in that particular moment, it's really a bit of her sense of sarcasm and sense of humor. Her partner in this story, her boyfriend, is telling her that's how she should tell her story. That's what she should do. And I think I see it again, tying back to that assembly scene as just the question of the validity of that whole exercise. Is it really possible to embed rhetoric in a narrative? I don't know. I certainly don't aspire to that within my writing, but... I think it's really interesting that socially we expect that at the moment. And I think it's fair, you know, for centuries, the novel has served to socialize ideas, to normalize ideas. And so it's a fair expectation that that could happen. I don't know how feasible it is when an idea or um, a question is outside of, I suppose, the dominant cultural narrative. The length of assembly is something that's been very much remarked upon. Um, I never read reviews of my own work, but I happily read reviews of yours. (laughs) And searching around, there is abundant praise, but almost every piece (laughs) opens with comments on the length of the book and how short it is. Um, I imagine that's because of how much it achieves in so few words. I wanted to ask about that choice for you. um, And I'd also love to hear a little bit about... I want to say your writing process, but I don't want to be the sort of person that says your (laughs) writing process, but that's what I want to know about. Sure. I think for me, I knew I wanted the reading to be quite a claustrophobic experience. We're trapped inside this narrator who's not active, who's not doing things. We don't learn much about her. We don't know her name, her age, really anything about how she looks. So writing from this really trapped and claustrophobic perspective, I felt would allow me to play some interesting tricks with the narrative. But I was also quite confident it simply wouldn't last if you try and extend it to 300 pages, 500 pages. It would just be too weighty. I really wanted a book that you could get to the last page and if you wanted to go right back to the beginning and read it again and sort of hear it differently and see the ideas, the sort of setup at the beginning referenced in different ways as you go on. So I approached it very deliberately um, from that perspective. In terms of the nuts and bolts of my process, um, I actually approached the other characters before I thought about the narrator, even though she's the protagonist. I thought about who they were, where they sat in this world, how their stories intersected, and really tried to understand what motivated them. I wanted to be confident for any character. I could write it as though they were the hero of the story. And I wanted to be able to justify to myself every decision that they made. Once that was done, I sort of looked at all the space that was left in between and I fit the narrator in there. And again, for me, it came back to this idea of how do I create claustrophobia? How do I create a person who is almost entirely reactive as fitting in the space left behind? That is so interesting. Having just listened to the audiobook, I, as I said, I read it a while ago, but I re-listened to the audiobook to prepare to, for tonight. And I did read it very differently and I did think about it differently. And I, I think you're, I imagine you're right. I feel like if you'd kept writing, if you'd overwritten it, let's say, I would have started to become frustrated by the things I didn't know. The fact I didn't know what she looked like and I didn't know much about her past. I think that would have become frustrating. But in a short novel, it's intriguing because I get to bring my own baggage along to it. <laughs> but I think that is such a powerful way of writing because, you know, conventional wisdom is you tell the reader lots about your character and that's how they get to know them. That's how they get to understand them and empathise with them. But I really felt particularly a lot of the identifiers we might apply to the narrator are so politicised and so charged that actually they don't build a bridge. They function as a wall and stop us from understanding who she is. So I was quite hopeful that if I pulled those away, didn't give that information, exactly as you say, we bring our own interpretation, we flesh it out with our own meaning, and it creates a different experience. But it is always a balancing act. You don't want to be too frustrating with that sort of thing. 
So let's turn to your protagonist. We've been talking about her for 15 minutes or so. <laughs> and of course, we haven't said her name because we don't know what it is. Um, tell me about the decision. Tell me about that decision to leave her unnamed and to leave her as her identity as a black British woman and essentially nothing more. Well, even the identity, it's not heavily said within the text itself. And yeah. it was really interesting when the book, before it was published, the publishers just printed a ring-bound version and sent that out to people with no real explanation of what it was. And there was confusion about who is this character? What? Right. Because we're so sort of expectant on who she is. We've read the back of it. But if you don't have that, I think it's a much more um, unclear character initially at least see that's true see I've read the blurb first the way I do before any book and that's I've taken that in as information from the book but it's not yeah which I mean I think is fine and that's how books function for me as a writer trying to be playful with the form itself it was interesting to imagine the interplay between those two um now I've forgotten what the question was I was asking (laughs) about the choice to not name her right thank you I, you know, so I feel names, particularly of racialized characters, are so charged. Um, any name we give a character like that, if it seems like a Western name, we question, are they, are they fake? Are they hiding their identity? If it's an ethnic name, we start to question, oh, well, you know, it brings up other questions about why haven't they assimilated? Why haven't they this? Why haven't they that? If it's a shortened name, it's are they hiding something? Is there a longer name they don't want to express? I felt that if I brought in the question of names, it would be a much longer book, just because there's a lot to address. Um, Zadie Smith is the novel N.W., which I think plays around with this a lot. She gives a character, a, a black female character, the name Natalie, but then reveals it's not really her name and gives her a much more stereotypically black name. And I feel a lot of how we approach this subgenre of fiction today has really grown out of the expectations set by some of Zadie Smith's novels. So knowing that that baggage is there, that expectation was there, when it comes again to the conventions, I just wanted to avoid it altogether. Plus it was quite easy to do because it's just a trend in fiction at the moment. There's a lot of nameless protagonists. I, I, I can't help but think of a personal example sitting there and listening to you. I have I have some good friends at the moment who are choosing their baby's name, and the um, the mother is a white woman, and her partner is a um, an, a man of Asian descent, and he doesn't want the baby to have any trap what he calls trappings of an Asian name because he thinks it comes with too much, and too much will be projected upon upon this child, and it's it's such a point of conjecture. And it's um, been shown in studies when yeah. the same CV is given different names, it gets a different response rate. Um, it's a very real phenomenon. And, you know, I hope that particularly as people travel and we get exposed to more different people within generations, that expectation will fade out a bit and a name can just be a name. But it's certainly not the case today. Yeah. I want to talk about the language of your narrator as well, which I found that don't get me wrong, I really like her. <laughs> but I found her quite unsettling at times because she was so neutral. Um, she, Firstly, we, we're inside her head, we're hearing her, her inner monologue, but uh, we're privy to that. But the people she interacts with, she, she rarely speaks at all, um, to our knowledge at least. Um, and she is silent in the face of so many microaggressions and just aggressions uh, to my reading. And I like I wanted to scream at people on her behalf. Um, I wanted to ask, has she, in, in your mind, has she always been this way or has the existence in this very white world of corporate finance meant that she's become this way? I think for me it was a really conscious choice in terms of how much realism did I want in the book. So what I mean by that is in a novel, we expect there to be conflict, it builds up a bit, we get a resolution, we cool off, the tension comes off, and then we build up again and we get another resolution until we get to the final big conflict. You know, the characters butt heads, it resolves, and the tension's lifted. Mm. Um, And we see that a lot with these kinds of narratives. If something, if an interaction happens that really shouldn't have happened, there is payback, there is a comeuppance. 
but that doesn't happen in life. <laughs> like yeah, in life, true. we offend each other all the time, and it's really rare actually that it comes out and is discussed, and we get that sense of resolution and satisfaction. And so, I wanted to lead into that realist element of how do people interact in the workplace when they've been slighted, and in other other situations. And I think it also had this really interesting knock-on narrative effect because we don't get sort of the resolution to the tension the sort of cool off it just builds and builds and builds and builds and when we get to the end and this final moment where we're hoping for something something that resolves it sort of just lets us go yes and that that can frustrate and I hope it doesn't frustrate too much but I really wanted to lean into that yeah and a friend who had also read the novel text I want to pay tribute to her uh, texted me saying that it made her um, reminisce of some of Hannah Gadsby's comedy um, particularly Nanette where she talks about how you craft a narrative how you craft a story and how you craft a joke and that you build tension in a joke and then you take the tension away and that's what's funny and that that was a piece of comedy where she refused to take the tension away she refused to make people feel comfortable and they did feel uncomfortable in a way that I wanted to be uncomfortable Mm. but it did make me it did give me a sense of uncomfort discomfort i want to talk about the white people i want to talk about the white people in assembly um earlier you mentioned that occasionally you stray into some satire more than occasionally i would argue and i think it roughly lines up when you're talking about white characters was that a choice firstly the characters aren't racialized That is it a never good point. I have made says. so many assumptions, haven't I? I just but assumed. We know how, I mean, for me... That you know who I mean, like, though, We don't you? know how to read it. And I was reading a novel, a sort of late Victorian novel, um, The New Grub Street by George Glissing, and it had so many asterisks in it with footnotes explaining why, um, you know, a common person can't marry a gentry person, why this, why that, all sorts of things that to them at the time seemed like differences in blood to us now are completely perplexing. And I thought about that a lot in terms of how do I approach the construction of race in a novel? We find it cheesy to mention every character's hair colour. You know, that's cheesy today, but it's still quite common to mention every character's race. Um, I wanted to see if I could play around with that, which again is one of those things where you probably wouldn't get away with it for 300 pages, but in 100 you can do that sleight of hand. Oh, now I have to read it again for the <laughs> third time because uh, I've made all these assumptions about these annoying people being white. Um, <laughs> <laughs> the portrait of our narrator's friend, Rach, I think is just so exquisitely drawn. And there's one line that I did pull out where you say, a home county's Kate-loving, Jager-shopping, lean-in feminist. And when I read that quote, it just made me cry with laughter because I know Rach <laughs> and I, I, have, I am friends with many Rachers. Rachers um, are great. <laughs> yeah, she's excellent. There's, I can understand why our protagonist likes her. Um, I don't have a question. I just needed to tell you that I really loved her. Um, I do want to ask about the boyfriend. Mm. The boyfriend is also nameless. Mm. Um my obsession with the non-naming is starting to show. <laughs> Talk to me about him and why, why, why we left him nameless as well. Well, in terms of his name, I sort of felt he would be nameless until, so for anyone who hasn't read it, it's set uh, in London in the city of finance uh, where oh, the narrator we'll works. <laughs> and then she travels out to the countryside to attend this grand garden party at her boyfriend's parents' house. Um, and I felt he would be nameless in London um, to sort of, as a nod to, and we start to see more of it, how rootless he feels there because mm. it is this big multicultural city. And for someone like him, we get the sense that he's from money, but the money's perhaps running out a little bit. Mm. It's a bit unclear what his future is in this space. But then when he got home, I thought he'd get his name. But actually when he gets home, when I got to that point, it felt he's the son. He's the son. Yeah. And it felt really right to refer to him in terms of his relationship to this family. And actually, for me, that's one of the points where the narrator really starts to uh, demonstrate her agency in the narration. His parents, when she arrives at the house, say, call us Helen, call us George. But she continues to call them the mother and the father in, our, in her narration to kind of keep them at this distance, treat them almost like specimens and to sort of assert herself, even if she doesn't in the conversation. At one at one point, um, the boyfriend is is described as the kind of boy who was born to helm this great nation. <laughs> um, 
I can hear the giggles. And I think that's, that's another description that makes you go, oh, yeah, I know that, I know that boy. <laughs> I've met that boy. Um, have you met many boys like that <laughs> in your life? And have any of them contacted you since reading the book? <laughs> I think, you know, there are a lot of people like that. Um, and particularly certain schools, certain universities, it is an entire social strata, certainly in the UK. And what I was really interested in was just how unmoored this character feels because it is uncertain right now. And to go back to the sort of new industries that the narrator works in, uh, finance, tech, engineering, all of these places are growing in terms of certainly in the UK and the US, their dominance within the economy, their dominance within the economy to make an income from just being a landholder in the UK just isn't so feasible anymore, not in the same way that it was. And I was really fascinated in how do these different characters react to this shift? And so for the boyfriend, he sort of loses it a bit. He's not sure who he is now, what it means to have come from his family, what he expects from his future, his career hasn't panned out exactly the way he thought that it would. But for other characters like Rach, she relishes this shift. You know, she's really gung-ho, gets into the career, is keen to climb the corporate ladder. For me, I really thought about how all of these different characters interact with this this machine, the economy, and its changing relationship. To take a step back, I think, the relationship between capitalism and race. Um, race, you know, was constructed explicitly a couple of hundred years ago in order to facilitate capitalism. The wealthier European countries needed a group of people to perform labour for free. So they wrote into law these different racial categories that we simply didn't have before. And that was really useful when the economy was about um, raw materials and manufacturing and production. But you fast forward to now, and it's just not anymore, certainly in the countries that came up with race. It's much more about uh, tertiary services and quaternary services, so things like the narrator works in. And the weird, I think, relate or shifting relationship to race that I wanted to explore was how the guarantee, essentially, that race provided the class system is being undermined. Because race is not so useful to, if you're hiring a mechanical engineer, if you're hiring um, a risk analyst, it's not a useful way to decide who gets that job. And when you take away something that has been such a key part of how we organise our society for so long, what do the characters do without it, without its stability? Is there a kind of exchange that goes on within the relationship between our narrator and the boyfriend in that? I feel like she gets something from that relationship, you know, whether she wants it or not or sought it or not. She does get a level of um, maybe status or access and he gains this kind of, I don't know, um, like woke credibility. <laughs> it feels like that's what he's going for. Uh, it feels almost like a, a contractual exchange. Well, I mean, he explicitly references, I think, Bill de Blasio, um, who's an American politician who kind of has this dynamic. Um, I thought a lot about Jane Austen and, you know, I'm, I'm a big Jane Austen fan. I really like her writing and marriage is always, you know, Pride and Prejudice, it's a truth universally acknowledged that a man in possession of a good fortune must be in want of a wife she's continually assessing what the different people in a relationship bring each other and why or not they would be a good marriage um and that kind of assessing the romance and sort of practical side of the romance was something i wanted to try and update for modern society um but also i think the boyfriend has that function for the book itself he serves as a point of view character for those of us who are picking up the book and aren't familiar with the narrator, don't know quite who she is, don't know how to relate to her. We get to see her through the boyfriend's eyes. Yeah. And he's much closer to who, if we pick up an English novel, we expect to see the narrative centre around. And so his buy-in with her, his view of her, helps us as readers to understand who she is too and to trust that there's something okay about this woman because she has his vote of confidence. Yeah. And I quite, again, that duality between the function they perform for each other in the story and the function he performs to the book itself I wanted to play around with. The narrator's ex-boss, Lou, he sort of insists that he's different because he gets it, it uh, because he is also an immigrant who grew up poor. Um, 
are the lose of the world a help or a hindrance, do you think, when it comes to achieving actual rather than performed inclusion? I think Lou's just a bit of a punchline <laughs> Yeah, within the novel. He's really helpful. Because I love that the whole time you've been like, and this was very deliberate. And I'm going <laughs> back to Austin and he's, from, and he's just for fun. Yeah, I mean, he is. And he's one of the first characters that the narrator really makes fun of in her internal monologue. And it gives us a sense of who she is, this kind of spiky millennial protagonist that we're used to seeing. It helps us to like her because she seems funny in how she introduces him. Now, when we see him later on in the novel, we get sort of more shades and subtlety to who he actually is um, and who he is, I guess, beyond how the narrator casts him. But I felt it was really interesting how Lou and the narrator, they both get a promotion and they're sharing sort of a head of department job. And just the response of each of the characters and the assumption about why each of them got that role, mm. whether each of them deserved the role. Um, it's gestured at in quite vague terms, but I think it's obviously an ongoing conversation in a lot of workplaces now that I think just like a while ago when women entered the workplace, it was quite a culture shift and we were asking you know it's surprising if a woman is in charge of something that, that was surprising a little while ago mm. but now it's updating with new groups of people who were not as part of workplaces maybe 30 years ago but are now having the opportunity to be at the higher levels of organizations i, I want to pick up on that one for a moment because uh, that comment does come when when the narrator is promoted and one of the quotes that said back to her is it's so much easier for you blacks and hispanics um, I noted that down. There was another point in the book where an acquaintance asks, no, but like originally, where are your, your parents? Where are they from? They're from Africa, right? Uh, and the number of times I've been asked where I'm really from. Um, and then there's the conference where she suddenly has to step in and make the coffee for all these useless men who can't figure out how to use the machine. Uh, was it satisfying writing all those sort of awful microaggression moments? Not really. Um, <laughs> and I think there's there's this mix because on the one hand, I don't even like repeating that sort of rhetoric. We've all heard it. It's commonplace. I don't know that putting it in a book and making it part of a story is necessarily doing anything fruitful or productive. On the other hand, it again had to have some sense of realism had to sound like what workplaces what what pubs sound like right now um but it's certainly not the way i would approach such discussions again going forward in the future i feel for a debut you can't do anything too radically different if i look like me people are expecting certain things in a book if they're going to publish it um but i almost feel that by by just normalising them in fiction in this way and sort of making light of them, it reinforces them and re-entrenches them as um, valid dialogue and valid conversation. So I suppose what I'm saying is I have a really complex response to, I guess, the new lexicon of, um, I don't know, just unpleasant speech <laughs> that we're used to in novels. I've, it doesn't always sit right with me when something's called a fun summer read and some quite brutal things happen in it. Yeah. I understand it's good to get, you know, the shine on the books that they should have, but it also seems to me quite strange. And I guess it's like the conversation that happens around thrillers and the way the dead woman trope is used so lightly in those books. Uh, what does it do to us as a society when we consume that for entertainment? Yeah, I think I, I, I absolutely take your point, but at the same time, I think recounting those moments in order to bring them up to the light and to examine them as someone who's been on the receiving end of them, as I'm sure you have, there's also something validating in that where you go, yeah, that, that, wa that was upsetting and I wasn't just making a big deal out of nothing and all the people who told me, don't be silly, or the number of times I said in my head, oh, it's not worth saying something, Actually, that was hard and that was painful. Um, I, th I think that's really true and really valid and the good side of recreating such moments in fiction. I think what really doesn't sit right with me is, particularly when you're at sort of one of these big mega publishers, they'll publish this book alongside books that repeat that language um, and they're happy to take home the profits from both. Um, and back to this question of being complicit within a system and what can you do differently for me it's one of those no-win situations and it feels very uncomfortable yeah 
Now, folks, in the in the spirit of the fun summer read, um, I'm going to ask Natasha some questions about cancer, and then we're going to let you have the microphone. Uh, so prepare yourselves for that. So please be ready with some questions. We're going to have some microphones uh, moving around. We have some wonderful Wheeler Centre team members who are going to wave or make themselves known at the moment, um, and they'll come with you, uh, come to you with the microphone if you if you put up your hand. Uh, so we'll chat for a couple of minutes more, and then we'll we'll turn the microphone over over to all of you. I do want to talk about the fact that the narrator is diagnosed with uh, an unnamed cancer and throughout the book there is this sort of parallel, I think, um, between this disease that she's told is spreading through her body and the, and the prejudice that she somehow also chooses not to fight in a way. Um, can you tell me about the choice, because it's a very deliberate narrative choice, to introduce a life-threatening illness into the, into the narrative and how realistic perhaps her response is? Yeah, well, it gets described as a metaphor quite often. Mm. And for me, it's not. It's completely literal. Um, in the UK and the US, black women have a higher mortality rate from cancer, despite having a lower incidence rate. Mm. And for someone like the narrator, so someone in the UK, under 40s, talking about breast cancer, it's actually been shown that that's the excess mortality. So it's not explained by comorbidities. It's not explained by socioeconomic background. There's nothing she could do that would statistically give her a better chance of having a, a better outcome. And for me, it was really important to bring this into the story and, again, to talk about that question of what does this new industry she works in, this new career she has, how does this shift the narrative because the reason she knows she has ca cancer at the age that she does is because her employer paid for a, a you know comprehensive she medical can afford to know. object. Yeah. Her employer values her life in a way that um, in the UK we have socialized healthcare, but we have the exact same outcome as they have in the US on this on this issue. And not just cancer, by the way, in the UK, the death in childbirth rate is five times that of other groups for black mothers. It was a higher rate for coronavirus deaths. It's across um, these medical conditions. But the narrator has a chance to address it early because her employer values her and her employer cares about her life arguably more than her country does. Um, and now I could have her make a clear decision in the novel that she's going to fight this or she's, she's going to do something about it. But once again, I wanted to embrace the discomfort of doing nothing because as a society, that's what we do. There's a lot of black women dying every year needlessly because we're comfortable with the status quo. And so I wanted to take that broader situation and look at it in the sense of one individual woman. It doesn't quite feel so comfortable then. Um, and I know some people have told me I'm irresponsible for writing this and, you know, I should set an example with this character. But what's mattered more to me is the women who've come to me and said they've had exactly the same situation. They have had a health check done by their employer and found it then and been in a position to make a choice. I think it's an uncomfortable situation, but it's one I hadn't seen in fiction before and I felt I felt compelled to include. I had so many other questions and now you've made me think more, which is painful <laughs> for me right now. I think I, I, I struggled and I should um, I should be uh, upfront, I'm a cancer survivor. Um, I struggled with the, the reaction so much. Um, because it didn't not because I think someone should be expected to seek treatment when they don't want it, but because it felt like the choice between staying in the in the white man's rat race and dying were too too binary. I felt like there were there were more choices for her, and I'd fallen in love with her by that point, and I wanted them for her. Um, but I think the way you've explained just then how the point the broader point you were trying to make around. Uh, the access to healthcare and the effectiveness of healthcare for black women has ruined all my questions. <laughs> that means it's your turn, everybody. Uh, we are going to go to the audience. So throw up your hand, please, if you have a question for Natasha. And we've got um, one of our Wheeler Centre folks on either side. I can see someone just in front of you here who might be hard to spy. Hello. Oh, I didn't think I would be the first person. Um, hi, Natasha. I'm here. <laughs> Hello. Hello. <laughs> uh, 
read your book during lockdown. My friend and I both work in corporate Australia and we, it resonated very strongly with us. This is both half a book question and a career question. So I f- we felt like you had eviscerated your workplace, essentially. If I left a glass door review, I would put your novel in too for my <laughs> workplace. Um, I guess my question is, after writing that, we're both curious. You said you mentioned that you want to go back into finance um, apart from like financial reasons, I guess, what would, um, after having written that, and I guess it felt to us like, you know, exquisite portrait of rage, um, what makes you kind of want to go back and like you've, I guess you've painted it out as like a kind of like a, like a dangerous, like not dangerous place, but tension field pace as well. Like what makes you want to go back and how do you sort of balance that back into the writing that you want to do? Mm. Um, I think I think that's a great question, um, and perhaps it seems like a contradiction. I think one of the biggest things that stood out to me from this book is people from vastly different fields have said her workplace feels familiar. Um, people, you know, not in office jobs at all have said so much of it felt familiar. I feel it's something broader, that, that sort of culture and that sort of unease is something broader, it seems to me, than just just finance, just office jobs, just this. Um, And I think the other side of it is, for me, my interaction with books, my interaction with publishing was purely as a reader for the majority of my life. It's only been this last two years, really, that I've seen this industry from the inside. And I have to say, to me, the, the conversation, I suppose, around race and around racialized people seems incredibly simplistic sometimes within publishing. Um just sort of looking at the way various books are published, uh, it, it tells you something about how the writers of these books and the readers of these books are viewed by the decision makers in this space. And even looking at it from a numbers perspective, despite, as you pointed out, the increase in publishing people from different backgrounds, where does the actual marketing budget go? Where does the budget for advances go? Where does the investment go? It's quite clear, I think, where the priorities are. So it certainly doesn't seem to me like any sort of better alternative, certainly not. Thank you. Uh, we might come to this this side. I was going to swap between microphones. Hi. Um, you mentioned earlier, and if I, I might have misinterpreted this, but you mentioned that if you'd had the option, you would have done things more radically, but that there were certain expectations of you, maybe from your publishers or otherwise, um, about what the book was actually going to contain. If you did have the option to do things more radically, what would you have done? I think uh, I really like that question. Thank you. My answer would be, check out my next book. (laughs) (laughs) But no, I do feel, you know, people who look like me are kind of publishing the same sort of book at the moment. And I don't think that's because people who look like me aren't writing sci-fis, aren't writing fantasies, aren't writing all sorts of things. I think it's because the people who decide what to publish are interested in publishing this sort of book at the moment because they know they can sell it. Um, and I'm sure that will that will shift and having smaller publishers who can take more risk with what they publish is really exciting in that space. But for me, this book, at the heart of it, I was really interested in the question of language and whether language, or English specifically, can be neutral and how I, as a person thinking in English, reading in English, speaking in English, can try and use English to assess its own neutrality. And so for me, an example of that is the word outline. If I use the word outline to describe the edge around this table, I'm just using a descriptive word. It's not heated. I, I'm not trying to sort of have a sort of narrative around it. I'm literally just using the word. If I say the word border, even if I mean it in the exact same sense, because of all the context the word border is used in, suddenly it's charged, suddenly it's political. You attach that with looking at me as well, it becomes something else. And it's a simple example, but I really wanted to quantify that effect with other words and try and use the novel to explore that. Um, I feel in some ways assembly succeeds at doing that. In other ways, I feel it falls short. Uh, but by having a first book out that sort of, uh, thank you to those who've read it, found a readership and, and had a warm response, it gives me the freedom with the second book to address the same question again. I feel like this will be my obsession for some time, but without being rooted to this avatar of the narrator. 
um, because that's what I had to write the first time around. That's very well explained. And um, for context, for those in the audience here in Australia, certainly the publishing industry um, is extremely white. Publishers, editors, marketing, um, it's a massively white-dominated industry. Uh, I, th I think we're going up, up here. I'm pointing vaguely. I'm sorry, I'm not sure where the mic is. Hi. Um, the narrator makes sense of herself through observing the people around her a lot um, and the disparities in body language particularly uh, stood out to me. Do you think it's necessary for us to understand ourselves in relation to other people or does this limit us and make us destined to fit into the machinery that you reference throughout the book? Uh, thank you. I think one thing that to me was really important about the narrator is that she demonstrated a real understanding of the spaces she was in and the people she was surrounded by. I think sometimes there's an expectation that people who look different don't understand the society they're a part of, but of course she does. She wouldn't be in the position she'd been in if she didn't understand how it worked. And I feel what's more, the sort of extra layer to it is with the history that the UK's had, particularly across its colonies, it's really socialised an image of itself. It's sort of culture offensive to spread a particular culture across the world, has had the inverse effect or the converse effect of meaning there's a lot of people who understand British society very well, understand British people very well. So I really wanted to play around with this expectation that she's somehow a fish out of water and somehow doesn't understand how the society she's a part of functions. I don't know how much she uses them to understand herself. I think she has a real awareness of how she's seen, what she signifies in any given context. But for me, I'm not really sure. I tend to not even think of her so much as a real person in a sense. I feel she's more of a reflection of that looking at her. I don't know if she necessarily understands herself through that lens. Thank you. I want to thank everyone for their wonderful questions this evening and coming out on a very rainy Melbourne night. Uh, most of all, of course. at home. <laughs> uh, us too, sadly. Um, uh, please put your hands together in thanking Natasha Brown before I continue. Thank you so much. A couple of other thank yous. I want to thank the Wheeler Centre for having us tonight. I want to thank Caro Llewellyn and Veronica Sullivan, who are both here, who are responsible for the incredible program behind Spring Fling. Thank you to RMIT for letting us use your magnificent space. Thank you to our interpreters, who have been doing a very diligent job looking after our audience and making sure everyone can access Natasha's wonderful words tonight. Uh, thank you so much for your attention this evening. Thank you, Natasha, and safe flight home tomorrow. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you, everyone. You've been listening to Jamila Ritzvi in conversation with Natasha Brown. It was recorded at the Capitol on Thursday, the 10th of November, 2022. This event was presented in partnership with RMIT Culture and supported by Future Women, with thanks to University of New South Wales Centre for Ideas. The Wheeler Centre podcast is produced on the lands of the Wurundjeri Woiwurrung people of the Kulin Nation. You can listen to more podcasts or explore videos, news and our full calendar of events at wheelercentre.com.